In your Bible today, we return to the book of Genesis, and we're now in chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and I'm not going to ask you to stand today to read the Scripture because I'm not going to read it quite yet, and when we get there, it's going to be a brief passage. Genesis chapter number 3 in your Bible. Take your Bible out, if you will, and uh, the subject today, the serpent Satan and the supernatural. The serpent, Satan, and supernatural. Now, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, if you note everything back in verse 31 of Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so God pronounced everything in the creation good. Man had been made now and was in the image of God. Man at this point in time was an object of absolute perfection. The woman in chapter 2 had been made from the side of man, from the body of man. She too was perfect. And they were married in a garden wedding that God himself performed. And they were living happily here Everything was very good. Every loving provision had been made for everything that God had made, someone, a famous author has said. Every loving provision has been made for everything that God had created. Everything is good. The plants are good. There's no thorns on the roses. Uh, There's no poison on the ivy. The plants are good. The animals are good. The tigers are not eating up the lambs yet at this point. Everything is good. The plant life, the animal life, the human life, everything is perfect. The best that God could do. And he put man and woman in a garden, the Garden of Eden. It was the place of absolute perfection, the Garden of Eden, the place that only the hand of God could have created. There's no sin. There's no sorrow. There's no regret. There's no disappointment. There's no sadness. Everything is forward-looking with anticipation. There's no pain. There's no death. There's no sin. All is good. In fact, God said, Genesis 1 and 31, everything is very good, very good. And we come to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so enter the serpent. And things are not going to be good now very long with the serpent. You will note the description here in chapter 3 and verse 1. He is more subtle, more subtle, more cunning, more wise, more intelligent, more crafty, according to that one phrase there in the Scripture, than any other single creature that God has made. So he's very, very special. Don't think of a 
snake slithering around on the ground. That's not what is happening here. Certainly, I don't believe that. The Hebrew word for serpent here used by the author of the Scripture is nahash, nahash. Now, the very definition of that word means a beautiful, shining, and listen to this, upright creature. A beautiful, shining, upright creature. So, it seems to certainly imply that the serpent here, remember this is in his pre-fall, before the curse, before the fall, in the pre-fall existence of the serpent, that uh, he's different. He's very different. He's not a talking snake, as you hear people say today, because the Hebrew word will not permit that, the word for the serpent here. He is upright. Now, I've never seen a snake that was upright, have you? I've seen some of them that have coiled and sort of a little piece of them are upright, a cobra before he bites you or a rattlesnake, but no, I haven't seen an upright serpent in my existence. But the reason that I believe that is a good definition of this is if you'll go down in chapter 3 to verse 14, after sin enters, after the curse has come upon the world pronounced by God Himself, the first thing that He does is He speaks here to the serpent. And He said, because you did this, you are cursed above the cattle and every beast of the field, and upon your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, if he had been already on the ground crawling around and eating dust and going on his belly, then that wouldn't be a curse, would it? So there's, there was some major transformation of this serpent being, whoever he might be. Was he somehow complicit? Because he's craftier than any of the beasts that the Lord had made other than man. And if he was not complicit, well, then why was he cursed? Now, I can't even answer my own questions. I can raise more questions than I can give you answers for on all of that. But there certainly is an inference and an implication here that this serpent being is more than a slithering snake upon the ground here in the Garden of Eden. You know, there's a big word that we use sometimes, and I try not to use any more big words than I have to, but I don't know another one to replace it. It's called uniformitarianism, uniformitarianism. And here's why a lot of people reject the book of Genesis. This is why the skeptics say, I don't believe that stuff about the creation and the six-day creation and and all this stuff. And as you go through here, there are many things that are not like things are now. Now, what do I mean when I use that big word, uniformitarian? It's the assumption that things have always been like they are now. Uniformitarianism, the idea that because I look at a snake slithering around in my yard and I assume that snakes have always been like that, or I assume that because it rains, it has always rained and the water has fallen rather than some other form of hydration for the universe. So you, under, you see, if you are a uniformitarianist, you, it, boy, that is a mouthful, isn't it? 
But if, you're, if you believe things are always, have always been like they are now, then you're going to have a hard time with all the book, everything in the book of Genesis. But you see, I believe that between the curse, the fall, and the flood, that so much of what happened before all of that has been changed. And now that we live in a fallen world, a world under the curse, a world that sin dominates and controls because of that, I don't have any trouble believing that snakes didn't always crawl on their belly. Now, what form was the snake in, the serpent in? I have no idea. Anything I said would be speculation. It would be conjecture. But I do know that it would not have been much of a curse on the snake if God had not said, uh, well, listen, you're going to crawl on the ground the rest of your existence here. So I'm not a uniformitarianist. I don't believe that things before the fall necessarily are the same as they are after the fall. Now, the Bible says a good bit about this serpent. And just keep your finger there in Genesis and turn with me to the last book of the Bible. Go over to the book of Revelation, chapter number 12. And you're going to find something very, very interesting here. The Bible begins talking about this serpent, whoever he was. And the Bible ends talking about this ser serpent. He is a personality all the way through the Scripture. And so we go to Revelation chapter 12 in verse number 9. And the great dragon was cast out. Well, let's, let's back up a little. I need to give you a little background. Chapter 12, let's go back to about verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, Revelation 12 and 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. Now, circle the word stars there. Sometimes in the Bible, the word angel is rendered star. And I, I don't have time to go through all the proofs. I could prove that to you. Angels are referred to as stars. So his tail drew the third part of the angels of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. It was not talking about Eve there. It's talking about the nation of Israel typically, but we'll move on. Now go down to verse 9. Let's find out who the dragon is. The great dragon that caused the fall of one-third of the angels was cast out. He's cast out of heaven. Previous verse. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So now we identify the serpent as being Satan himself, the devil. And if you'll go with me one more time here, go to Revelation chapter 20, and we're down to the very end of our Bible. And in chapter 20, and in verse number 2, he laid hold, Michael the archangel, laid hold on the devil, on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. It takes every name of him here, and he's bound for a thousand years and cast into the bottomless pit, and so on. So, here we have the serpent 
identified. Chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle. I can read it, the dragon was more subtle. The, the devil was more subtle. The adversary, as he's called throughout the Bible, was more subtle. Whether Satan had just possessed this serpent being or whether he had turned himself into some form of that miraculously with his supernatural power, I don't know. Lots of questions that you and I can't answer. But there's enough here that we can positively identify this serpent. This is the devil personified. And so, enter the serpent. Now, in the rest of this chapter, we now have to move into something entirely different. So, my second point to you today would be, my first point was the serpent. The second point is, now we're going to move from the natural to the supernatural. From the natural to the supernatural. Boy, that's hard to do in 2022 because we have absolutely been nourished and weaned on the mother's milk of skepticism about the supernatural in the world today. We're naturalists almost exclusively unless we have been exposed to the Bible and a real Christianity. And so we move here from the natural, from God creating the universe in six days, from creating a garden, from creating man and woman and all of those things. What I've been talking to you about in all the messages preceding this one, I've been talking to you about natural things, things that are physical, material. You can touch them, taste them, see them, feel them. But now we're going to leave the natural, and we're going to move to the supernatural, the fourth dimension, sometimes we call it. What do we mean by the fourth dimension? Well, up until now, we've dealt with three dimensions. We've dealt with time, the things of time. We've dealt with space, the things dealing with space. And we've dealt with matter, which includes energy, of course. And so three dimensions, time, space, matter. Now we're going to go to a fourth dimension, the dimension that unless you believe in the supernatural, you will reject. And it's the world of the supernatural, the fourth dimension. We begin with angels because you've, we, we need to understand angels to understand Satan. In your Bible, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, and I'm not going to turn there and read it, but you can if you want, or you can just jot down the reference. But it clearly says, angels are ministering spirits. Angels are spirit beings. They're not tangible, material, physical beings like you and I. They don't have flesh and blood. They are a part of the spirit world. And again, my knowledge and your knowledge, human knowledge, ends at about what I've said. We don't understand a great deal about the spirit world. But we know that angels, according to the Bible, were created by God. When were they created? We can't even exactly say that. We just know they, they appear here. Maybe the first day of creation would be my guess, but I really can't say dogmatically and emphatically. But I know that angels were created by God, and His purpose in creating them was that they are to minister to 
him and to his people. Their whole purpose of existence is to serve, to minister to God himself, and especially to Christians, to his people here on the earth. Interesting, as you go through your Bible, they are always male. There are no female angels pictured in the Bible. And that's one reason Jesus said in the Gospels they can't reproduce. They're not married and they can't reproduce. And so angels are always male. Now, you usually see them pretty little girl figures with white clothes and wings on them. And you almost assume that angels are female. But if you read your Bible, I'm sorry, they're, they're always men. And uh, they're organized. They're organized. In fact, we don't even know how many there is because here's the term the Bible uses, uses to describe the number of angels. They're referred to as innumerable, the innumerable host, the innumerable host. So they're beyond our ability to count them. Perhaps there's billions of angels. I think there probably is. I think that there is a guardian angel. I believe in that concept from the book of Psalms. I believe there's perhaps an angel assigned to every single Christian. I can't be sure of that, but I, I, I think that I have some evidence for that from the Bible. They're organized into different levels of authority and to different levels of power. To, apparently, they have different job descriptions that they've been given by God. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, a very familiar passage to you, it refers to principalities and powers as it is describing the the uh, supernatural world, principalities and powers. That's a reference to, to angelic creatures. And there's categories of them. There, there are just the angels, the general term for them. Then the Bible refers to archangels. And then it refers to cherubim, another type of angel. It refers to seraphims, uh, another type yet of angels. And now we understand something about Satan because I'm going to show you in a moment, Satan was an angel. He was a cherub, one of the, apparently one of the highest orders of angels. And so we have to understand angels as being spirit beings before we can understand something about the serpent. The serpent is an angel. He is a spirit being in his existence. According to the book of Daniel, we won't turn there, but God has assigned certain areas of the earth for certain angels to oversee. So it's like an angel is assigned a certain geographic area. An angel perhaps has been assigned to South Carolina the southeast, Florence County, who knows, but God assigns them to specific areas, and we find that some of Satan's angels have copied that pattern, the principalities and powers. That phrase includes all of that. Now, turn in your Bible, the book of Ezekiel with me, and we're going to see this is probably, there's more description here about Satan, the serpent here, than any other place in your Bible. Je uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 11. 
Ezekiel 28 and 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, who's the king of Tyrus? Well, apparently, he is a king, although there's no record uh, in secular records of the king of Tyrus, but apparently he is a king who is symbolic of Satan. Perhaps he wasn't even real. I don't even know. But this man represents the devil himself. And I'll show you why we know that to be true. Thus saith the Lord, verse 12, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom. And so this king of Tyrus is absolutely full of wisdom. And he is perfect in beauty, perfect in beauty. Now I go to verse 13, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Wait a minute. There wasn't any king of Tyrus in Eden. There was Adam and Eve and God and Satan. We know that from reading the Genesis account here. So he was in Eden, which eliminates some other character, some earthly king. Chapter 13 and, or verse 13, and there's a description here of his covering, perhaps of his clothing, some spectacularly decorated garment that he had. And you go to the end of the passage there in verse 13, and it said, this was prepared for thee in the day that you were created. So now we know that Satan was created. He is full of wisdom. He is beautiful beyond description. He's not some repulsive type of being. He's a created being. Verse 14 puts him in the category of the cherubs, the anointed cherub, in fact, a cherub with a special anointing. And what is his job description? I put you in the middle of the holy mountain. The holy mountain is the very presence of God himself, the immediate presence of God. He is right there at the throne of the Almighty. You read in the Bible about cherubs in other places, and, and they, are, uh, they have important duties. When the, Adam and Eve sinned and they were driven from the Garden of Eden, where did they go? Well, they went out and the garden was then guarded by what? By cherubs. Cherubims guarded the garden to keep them from coming back in. And when you go later into the book of Exodus and you see the Ark of the Covenant made, and on top of it there's the mercy seat, and the mercy seat, God gives a very elaborate description of these beings. There's two angelic figures, and they're cherubim. They're cherubim. And they are the figures that adorn the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So you see these cherubic figures throughout. And Satan is said to have been a cherub. He had been in the holy mountain, the immediate presence of God. In verse 15, note with me, he was perfect in all of his ways. He was not created sinful. He was not rebellious against God in his creation. He was perfect from the day that he was created until. And then the Bible gives us a hint of what's wrong 
with this world today. It says that iniquity was found in him. Iniquity was found in him. What is iniquity? Make your little note there in your Bible, perverseness. Iniquity is perversity. Iniquity is wickedness. Iniquity is sin in the very face of God, just grinding it right in his face. This is Satan. Now, in verse 17, it gives us more. And, of course, verse 16 said, Thou hast sinned, and I'll cast you out of the mountain, O covering cherub. You'll be cast out of the midst of the stones of fire, another descriptive phrase of heaven. But we go to verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. He was, sin entered his heart because of his pride. He's lifted up because he's so beautiful. You ever see somebody couldn't pass a mirror without stopping and looking? That was the devil. That was Satan. He was so beautiful. He was impressed by his beauty, and pride welled up in him. He became so proud of how he looked, apparently. And then not only that, but it says he was corrupted by his wisdom. He thought, I'm the smartest guy in the room, (laughs) no matter what room I'm in. I have more wisdom and more knowledge than anybody here. And Satan was proud of himself, and he was intellectually Oh, he thought he was something, didn't he? He's corrupted by his wisdom. And, of course, he was self-deceived. Now, I'm not giving you a verse for that. He was self-deceived, but it's evident. You don't have, I don't have to give you a verse. It's self-evident. You see, what was Satan's real sin? Satan's real sin is that he didn't know God. He didn't understand the character of of God. He didn't truly understand who God was. Because obviously, it's logical, Satan did not believe that God was omnipotent, that God was all powerful. He believed that he was as powerful as God, or he would not have led a rebellion against him. He is so beautiful, he's carried away with his appearance. He is corrupted internally because. He is deceived. He thinks he's as wise as God. He thinks he's as powerful as God. Had he believed that God was all-powerful, omnipotent, he never would have rebelled and led a rebellion against God. He really thought he could win, obviously, common sense. And so he believed he could be as God, that he could displace God, that he could He could basically kick God off the throne. And you call that the ultimate form of self-deception, don't you? How foolish. He thought he was so smart, so brilliant, and yet he was a fool. And any man is a fool who thinks he can compare himself to God. This is Satan. What's God's response to him? Verse number 17, I'll cast you down to the ground. I'm going to defeat you, Satan. You've put me in a position. I'm going to act, and boy, when I act, I act. I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to bring you to the ground. 
Now, there's one more passage we need to look at to understand our enemy here, and it's Isaiah chapter 14. So go quickly with me there. And there's another passage that deals with this idea of Satan, the serpent that appears here in Genesis 3.1. And so I'm in Isaiah chapter 14. And we know, there's no doubt about who we're speaking about here in verse 12, Isaiah 14 and 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? The only time the word Lucifer is used in the Bible, but we know that simply means the devil. Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Note that phrase, weaken the nations. You want to know what's going on in the world today? Right there's one description of it, isn't it? The one who weakens the nations, the one who causes the fall of empires, he's named here. Now, so he's called Lucifer. Lucifer means a shining one or a day star. It's the only mention of him in the Scripture by that name. And then look in verse 13. And six times I've marked in my Bible, he says, I will. Beginning in verse 13, you have said in your heart, this is God speaking to him, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. That's where Ezekiel said he had been, in the sides of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Verse 14, I will be like the most high. Six times this being, Satan, says, I will be like the most high God. An absurd ambition, if there ever was one. A person, a being self-deceived in extremis, could not be more self-deceived than he is here. In verse 15, what does God say? I'm going to bring you down, boy. Thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit, his ultimate destiny. I'll bring you down, Satan. And this is God's threat to him. Now, that's a lot of teaching, a lot of information here, but I wanted you to understand your enemy. This is the serpent. All of that is background for Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other beast that God had made. And now you know who he is. Now, Genesis, the reason I started teaching and preaching through this book is because, as I told you at the beginning, I was reading this article by Ken Ham, and Ken Ham says the reason that we're losing our young people from the church and from the Christian faith, one of the primary reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons is that we don't answer in church the ultimate questions the ultimate questions. Well, when I read that, I, I thought, well, I better start answering the ultimate questions because I don't want to lose any young or old person because they don't know these basic questions. Ultimate questions, ultimate in importance, the most important questions people ever ask themselves or anyone else in life. Ultimate, the ultimate, the end, the most important questions. What are they? 
There are not many of them. Is there a God? Well, we're answering that, aren't we? We're learning a lot about Him. And then, who am I? And we've learned that we're made in His image, male and female created He them. We're learning from Genesis who we are. I can look in the mirror and say, I am a male created in the image of God. I am, and there's a whole lot that you can add to that that you will learn right here in these early chapters of Genesis. Where did I come from? Is there a God? Who am I? Where did I come from? Well, we know now where we came from. We're learning more about it all along. What is my purpose? We're going to get to that one real strongly in the next couple of weeks. And where will I go when this is over? And then there's one more of the ultimate questions that you usually find posed. And that is, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? I've read polling that said that one of the main reasons people become atheistic and agnostic is because of this question. And they can't answer it. If God is all-powerful, why did he allow this? Why does he allow evil at all? Why doesn't he just snuff it out? And if God is loving, why does he permit it? And you look at the world today, you you read the news about what's happening in Ukraine, and you think, why doesn't God just stop that? Why doesn't he just give Putin a heart attack or something? Just get him out of there so he'll back off. Why is there so much evil and suffering? And on a personal level, we go to the hospital, and there's our loved one lying there at the point of death. And these questions always come up in our minds. I noticed back here today, Kitty Woodall, she's here in church. I just buried her husband on Friday. And why do you lose a good man who never missed a church service and read his Bible every day of his life? Why do you lose people like that? Why is there so much evil and suffering and death and sadness and disappointment and heartbreak? I mean, the world is full of it, isn't it? If, you, if you're not experiencing it, just hang on. You will. Good news for you. <laughs> but uh, you, we, We're all going to go through that, aren't we? We're all going to suffer those things. So how do we answer that? Well, the Christian has an answer. Genesis has an answer. Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world today? Because there is an evil being who was the second most powerful being in the universe, created of God to be at his very throne who has power unimaginable, the serpent, Satan, the devil, he is the source of evil. Thou wast perfect until iniquity was found in thy heart because of pride and because of arrogance about his own wisdom. He rebelled foolishly, stupidly against Almighty God, blindly. 
thinking that he could unseat the deity, and he was cast out of heaven. Why did God not snuff him out at that moment? That's number one on my list when I get to heaven. Why didn't you just off him right then, Lord? But he didn't because God has a divine plan. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons he didn't, I believe it'll be next week. So there is an evil being, an evil source behind the evil and suffering of the world today. He's called the first, or he's called the father of lies. He's called the murderer from the beginning. Jesus called him that. He is the instigator of all hatred and violence. Don't think I'm talking about an imaginary mythical figure. He is real. He is the enemy of your soul. Another interesting tidbit about him, he's never changed his strategy because he's never needed to. He's called by Jesus the deceiver. And that's his modus operandi. That's his plan. That's, that's his strategy. All he does is lie and deceive and deceive and lie. He never changes. He doesn't need to change because he's found that human beings are pretty easy to deceive, especially those that don't know the Word of God. And so Ephesians 6 and 12 says this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our opposition is not human, flesh and blood. Our opposition is spiritual, a spiritual power, a spiritual personality. He controls this organized force. One-third of the demon, of the angels fell with him. We call them demons now. The Bible calls them devils, plural. And there must be millions of them. And they're organized. They're an organized force. They're mobilized spirit beings, demons, evil like himself. And they're carrying out his will. Listen to what Martin Luther said. We sing that great hymn here often in our church. And in that hymn, there is a phrase, a mighty fortress is our God. And here's the phrase, just talking about the devil, on earth is not his equal. Think about that phrase. On earth is not his equal. We're no match for him. We're no match for him. And so a dark cloud has descended over the world today. A dark cloud has descended over America. My opinion, Satan is having a heyday when he looks at America today. It's He's dancing with joy. It's jubilation. It's celebration. It's high-five time when he sees what's happening in our culture. Last week, the New York Times carried an article, and someone sent me a 
picture of it, and I looked it up and read it from my phone. April 17th, New York Times. New York Times, supposedly the paper of record. In other words, of all the papers in America, this is the most official one. April 17th headline, time to get rid of God. Time to get rid of God. And the man goes on and on and on. He takes Ukraine and he talks about the killing and the cruelty and the violence and the mayhem over there. And he says, why don't we just get rid of the whole idea of God? It hadn't worked for us. It reminded me of the book of Psalms, Psalms number two, second Psalm. It says the leaders of the world get together, and here's what they say, let us break his bands asunder. Let us break his bands. What are the bands they're talking about breaking? They're the moral restraints that God has imposed upon the world. Let us break those moral restraints. Let's break them asunder. Let's do what we want to do. Let's be our own gods. We will determine what is right and what is wrong. That's what Satan said. That's what Adam and Eve said later. I read this week, the deception by our leadership is so bad, the leaders know we know they're lying, and they lie anyhow. Where'd they get that from? The motivating force is named the deceiver. The deceiver. The father of lies, Jesus described him. Now, one other verse real quickly, and I'll be through. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. And turn there in God's Word. And if you haven't marked this in your Bible, you probably should. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, wide-eyed, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about upon the earth, seeking whom he may devour, whom you are to resist steadfast in the faith. You're to resist him. And he's pictured as a lion who is crouching, ready to devour, ready to jump, ready to take advantage. Of course, spiritually, not physically so much. And you know, the Bible teaches one other thing about Satan that's very important to understanding. I won't turn there, but in, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, it says that he knows at, at that point in time that his time is short. He has discovered now he's not going to defeat God ultimately, but he's going to do all the damage that he can, if you will. In Revelation 12 and 12, he knows that his time is short. So what does that mean? He's going to intensify his efforts. He's going to up the game, if you will. And so the Bible says to us that evil times and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Why? Because Satan is going to intensify his efforts as he nears the end of the age. And what is our response? We're resisting. We're resisting. 
We're to resist him by first of all having the Holy Spirit of God indwelling our hearts. You see, when you get saved, if you're a Christian, when you repent of your sins and receive Christ and understand his work for you, the Holy Spirit enters your heart. And let me tell you something. If you're saved, you're indwelt by the Spirit, and you cannot be possessed. Satan can't come and take over in your life. But I'll tell you what he can do. He can influence you. He influenced Adam and Eve. He influenced um, Ananias and Sapphira. And Peter said, why did you let Satan fill your heart to do what you did? So you're not invulnerable. On earth is not his equal. Resist him. Resist him with the word. Resist him with prayer. Resist him by living a clean and godly, holy life. And lastly, is that the first lastly or the second lastly? (laughs) Might be the fourth or fifth one, you know. I start closing this thing about five minutes into it, so don't really pay much attention to the lastly's here. But this is the last lastly today. Don't blame God for the evil any more than you blame a good parent who had a child who committed a crime. Don't blame God for the evil. Oh, no, what, a hard, what blasphemy. Our God is a good God. He's a perfect God. He's a loving God, but he's also a just and holy God. He loves you. He is on your side if you're one of his children. Don't ever blame God for the evil in the world. Evil comes because Satan, the evil source, of all sin and wickedness. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.